0: Well, please do turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning as we continue to work our way through this amazing book. I want to make a note briefly before we get into the text on Hebrew storytelling. The Old Testament, of course, was written in Hebrew The Old Testament is passed down to us through a Hebrew culture, a Jewish culture, and the way that the authors of these books told stories isn't exactly the same way that we tell stories today. For instance, if you were to read through Joshua 3 and 4 just on your own time and to do it quickly, you would probably walk away being a little confused about why the story included certain details at certain times and then repeated certain details when it felt like we already covered that ground. Well, Hebrew storytelling is done in such a way that's different than ours, it's not strictly chronological. Stories are told in the Hebrew culture in such a way as to emphasize a point, to emphasize particular details that do come up on multiple occasions and at different parts of the narrative. And so this morning, we are going to be jumping around a little bit, and uh, we're hoping to cover quite a bit of ground today. Uh, At least I am, I hope you are too. And uh, next week, we're actually going to be covering very little ground. So we're going to start in chapter 4 and take a look at the first paragraph that's uh, found there, those first seven verses. Now last week, we covered chapter 3, and we looked at how the nation miraculously crossed the Jordan. Remember, the nation of Israel was on their way out of Egypt, They're, they're out of 40 years in the wilderness and God is bringing them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan that they would inhabit the land that God promised to their father Abraham. And last week, we looked at how God did that. He miraculously dried up the land before them. He stopped the flow of the river. But uh, there's more to the story than just crossing the Jordan. Walking across the Jordan wasn't the end for what God had for them. There was more the task, and there was actually one major task left to perform. They couldn't just walk across and be done, they had to do one more thing. Let's look at it together in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, "'Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight.'" So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, "'Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan,' And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever." Well, there was a 12-stone monument that Israel was to make. There were actually two sets of stones, and the first of which is defined here in that paragraph I just read for you. There was a 12-stone monument that was to be built corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And I want to make some observations from these first seven verses. I want us to grasp the details that are found here so we get a good picture of what exactly is going on at this time in Israel we can notice that particularly these stones had to be taken from the Jordan. God told Joshua that these stones were to be taken from where the priests were standing. These couldn't be just any stones taken from anywhere. They couldn't just cross over and then on the shore of the Jordan pick out twelve stones. That wasn't the case. They had to go back and likely dig and get twelve stones out of the middle of the Jordan. These were significant rocks. Not just any rocks would do. It had to be particular stones taken from the middle of the Jordan. And these stones had to be arranged at the place where they were lodging. They were to be taken out of the Jordan and not just set up right when they got to the edge of the water or edge of the bank, just like a big relief as they're carrying this huge stone. Surely it was a lot of effort. They had to go to the place where they were lodging and they were to be set up there. And it wasn't to be done sometime. This wasn't something that God said, on your own time, figure it out, you know, before sundown, do it. That wasn't it. It was immediate. Immediately, they were to perform this task. And if you look down at verse 8 with me, you see, thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded. They they did it right away. These rocks were big, apparently, but not too big. You see in those first seven verses, it's in verse 5, actually, that each man was to take a stone upon his shoulder. So I'm sure he picked out the hairiest, burliest men that they had, really, really strong guys, and they were to throw a stone up on their shoulder as they carried it out to where they were lodging. So you can infer here that this wasn't exactly Stonehenge. If you can picture Stonehenge in your mind, those are some very big stones. I don't think that's what's going on here. Now, you may wonder, where were they lodging? Where exactly did this happen? Well, let's look down at verse 19. This is the passage that Andy read for us at the start of the service. It tells us where this memorial was set up. 419, it says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. Okay, in verse 20, Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So it was at a place called Gilgal. What you'll see in the Old Testament, as Israel has different uh, scenarios in their history with different people, is that there are multiple Gilgals in the Old Testament. And we can say that this one was located between Jericho and the Jordan. So you have those maps in the back of your Bible. You can spot Jericho on there sometime, and it says plainly, it was east of Jericho. Now, you also may wonder, what did this setup look like? Because we actually don't have anything more specific than verse 20, where it says, Joshua set them up in the New American Standard. In the New Living Translation, it says he piled them up. That's pretty interesting, but I think it's reading into the text a little bit. If you're using a King James, it says that he pitched the stones. I'm assuming not like uh, a member of the Los Angeles Dodgers would pitch the stone, but they set up the stone, and we just don't know exactly what it looked like. Was it a tower? It doesn't say. Was it a circle? It doesn't say. We simply just don't know. But it was noticeable. We know this about the memorial. It would catch the eye of people who were walking through, people who were in the area. It was a conversation starter in that place. So we know that about that memorial. This memorial was to be a sign that would cause people to remember. Look again at the beginning of the chapter This is the conversation starter aspect where it says in verse six Later on, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean to you? Well, then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This was to cause people to remember what God did as the Ark of the Covenant went through the Jordan. And you see the centrality of the Ark of the Covenant in the significance. What was so significant about this crossing other than the waters stopped? I mean, that's pretty miraculous. That's pretty amazing. But if you remember last week as we were looking through chapter 3 and the details of the crossing itself, they were to keep their eyes focused on that ark. The ark was guiding them. The ark was steering them. And the ark represents, it symbolizes the presence of the Lord. And so this memorial was there to serve as an instrument of teaching to their children. God's presence saved us. God's power, when He came and was among us and went before us, led us to safety. This is to remind them of the power of God's presence to turn back physical barriers to His blessing. There was a land on the other side of the Jordan for this people, but that river was mighty strong. It was the right time of year when the the river was overflowing its banks, and it's in this big, deep valley. But the Ark of the Covenant went before us and made a way. God's presence was there. The grand lesson to be learned is that God's presence drives away the adversaries of His people. Do you believe that here this morning, I wonder? God's presence drives away the adversaries of His people. You want confidence? You want to be able to stand firm? You want boldness in this life? You need the presence of God, don't you? You need God to go before you. You need God to work in you because the presence of God drives away all of your enemies. You know, I've given you this summary of the book of Joshua, this one that I Came up with. The first part of it says, Yahweh keeps his promises by powerfully saving his people through faith. Well, the way that he saved his people here from the mighty Jordan, that was pretty powerful. He powerfully saved his people. And again, we see this at the end of the chapter. Look again down at verse 21, chapter 4, verse 21. It says, he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. And can you imagine the children standing there looking at the Jordan? Dry ground? Really? Let's keep reading. Verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which He dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God's power provides for His people. He makes a way. When God has called you to something, when God has called you to live for Him, in this world full of all kinds of obstacles, He makes a way. God always makes a way. He's powerful enough to make a way, and He wills it. Therefore, He's worthy of the utmost fear and reverence. You see that at the end in verse 24? Fear the Lord, that you may fear Him. That's the purpose. As we look through our lives and we think back on all the ways that God has made a way, all the different times that God has cut through our circumstances. And we know that none of those times were we deserving. Not one time did God owe it to us to make a way. Not one time was God obligated to be kind toward us. And yet we can think back at all these times when God just, He did it. Sometimes we don't even know what else to say, but God did it. His hand was at work, and that should prompt us, that should lead us to fear the Lord our God, not to move on and forget, but to reverently worship God. Now, there were 12 other stones. I told you there were two sets of stones, and the other one is mentioned just parenthetically almost. It's very quickly, it's verse 9. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 9, we see that there was another set of stones that were set up by Joshua seemingly on his own initiative. Joshua made his own personal memorial in the middle of the river. Let's look at that together, verse 9. It says, Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. (laughs) Isn't this interesting? Joshua went back and he was scrambling. Remember, we're talking well over a million people crossing the Jordan here, probably closer to two million people. And he's running in between all the women and children and everybody else that's doing all of their stuff, and he finds the priest. He sees the ark again. He comes back, and he's digging up these 12 stones, and he makes his own memorial right there in the middle of the river. As it was dry, he stacked up 12 stones in a very fitting place. You see, the text makes clear that this was at the priest's feet, right there where they were standing. And he goes on to say, that they are there to this day, meaning it's possible that when the river was low enough throughout the year, they could still see the top of those 12 stones. As the river went down at a certain time of year, they could say, there's Joshua's memorial. That's where the priests were standing. That's where the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was standing. You can imagine Joshua's thought process as he's watching all these people come through the Jordan, and he's perhaps on the other side, and he's standing back looking, and he says, I got to do something else. I have to do more. We have to do more to remember this event. And he goes running back and sets up this stack of stones, hurried across while the people were hurrying to the bank. And we looked last week how this chapter describes that they moved across the river and the Lord exalted Joshua in that day. That's verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And after the memorials were set, these two sets of stones were in place. The priests came out and the waters returned. Look at verse 18 with me. Same chapter, chapter 4, verse 18. It says, "...it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before." that is amazing. The timing here, once again, leaves no doubt that this was an act of God, right? I used to work a lot with contracts. I used to be in sales, and I would have to deal with all sorts of uh, different agreements that parties would have to sign. And there were all these sections about identification, and, and uh, you don't hold someone liable for certain things. And almost always, without fail, you would see in that paragraph, acts of God, if there's an act of God, you can't hold the other person responsible. Well, I think this would fall into the act of God clause that's in those contracts, if there was some sort of a contract that this affected. This is clearly an act of God. Now, what would happen if you got, you know, a few dozen secular scientists together to examine this event? Well, surely they would come up with all of their naturalistic theories. They would come out, up with all of their theories that would exclude an act of God, and they say, well, Perhaps there was a landslide at just the right time. Perhaps there was was something that happened that blocked the river just long enough for these people to cross. But right when the priests left, the water went back. Right when the soles of their feet came out of the Jordan, not only did the water trickle back, it came back and overflowed just as it was before. You see, God here is making it abundantly clear this was His work. This wasn't coincidence that, you know, some cavemen ascribed to some deity somewhere. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, keeping His promise. You're going to cross that river, and I'm going to go before you, and you will make it through. That's exactly what happened. This was a miracle, a working of God. And you know what else God was doing in this besides bolstering Israel's faith, besides bringing them to the land? he was sending a message to the people who had rejected him. You see again at the end of chapter 4, the purpose of this is that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And now just go to the next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, Joshua 5, verse 1. That's what happened. It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. This was totally deflating for Israel's enemies absolutely deflating as they were thinking, we're going to take on this nation. They're just a measly little nation. They've been out wandering in the wilderness, and they're going to come attack us. And God says, I'm on their side. That tips the scales a little bit, don't you say? And now their hearts melted, and there was no spirit left within them. Now, I want to make one more observation, again from chapter 4. We already read this a couple of times, but look again at verse 19. I want you to take note of when God did this. I know that you read this before and you didn't think much of it, but every detail in Scripture is important. It says in chapter 4, verse 19, that this happened on the 10th of the first month, the 10th of the first month. Now, I'm going to cross-reference this with Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and it says this, God speaking to Israel... This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, the first month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. This is referring to when God began His redemption of Israel from Egypt. And they're to take a lamb as they observe the Passover. God began His redemption with them on the 10th day of the first month as they were coming out of Egypt. And it's been 40 years. And here they cross the Jordan River miraculously. What other day would it be? The 10th day of the first month. God exercising His sovereign redemption, putting His plan together just as He wanted it, showing them that not only did He initiate their redemption, He's seeing it through. Now, as we reflect on the symbols and the memorials that we see in the text today, not just the stones, there were two sets of stones, but the day itself, this 10th day of the first month, different symbols and memorials that are found through chapter 4, we should ask the question, what should we learn from this and how should we apply this to our lives? Well, I want to simply say that God uses symbols and memorials. You know this to a degree, that God uses symbols and memorials in the lives of His people to teach us and to instruct us. And there are three main ways that God uses these symbols and memorials. In the same way that He used them in the life of Israel, He's using them in our lives today. The first way that God uses these things is to supplement our failing memory. Did you know you have a failing memory? (laughs) Some of you are learning more and more about that every day. Or maybe you forgot that God's been teaching you that. These symbols and memorials will supplement our failing memory by making our faith visible. Not only do we forget things individually, but we tend to forget things generationally. We tend to forget things from one generation to the next. And many of you know this as you've gotten older or you've gotten more mature. What's that word you like, Wayne? Is it mature? Yeah, better than old. Oh, better, that's better than old. As you've matured, Wayne. Yeah. Perhaps... Perhaps you've noticed that the younger generations just don't understand certain things, that there are certain aspects perhaps about our nation, our country, and what you think we should stand for that they have forgotten or they don't even know. We tend to forget things as time goes on, even important things. Last Sunday after the church service, my family scooted up to Salt Lake City, and we spent Monday on Antelope Island up there. We'd never been to the Salt Lake. It's been over eight years we've been in Utah, and we'd never been to that stinky place. And so we, th- we said, we should go and add the pictures to our photo book and all that. So we went up there, and we were walking around on Antelope Island at these different places they have where you can park and look at things. And we stopped at Gar Ranch. And if, I don't know if you guys have been there, but that was pretty fascinating, Gar Ranch on Antelope Island. And as you walk around in this place, you see they've preserved certain buildings for a really long time. And they've preserved certain uh, settings where the way that the barn was structured, there were certain elements to that barn that haven't been adjusted in a very long time. And next to a lot of those elements, you'll find a placard that explains what's going on. And let me tell you, Gar Ranch, it was named after a guy whose last name was Gar, this poor dude, he was a widow with nine kids. He was sent by the religious organization he was a part of, he was sent out to this island with 10,000 sheep. A widow with nine kids and 10,000 sheep to watch on this stinky island in the middle of the Salt Lake. And he was told to build a house and to maintain this ranch. I can't imagine. Now, without the placards, I would have no idea. (laughs) If If there was no protection of that, if there was no conservation going on, I would have no idea that any of that happened. And so we know just simply in life that By building memorials and setting up certain placards or notes in different places, we can pass on the memory of something that's important. Symbols and memorials supplement our failing memory. We really know this in our culture. How do we ensure that the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. is preserved? He gets his own day, right? You go to the mailbox and there's nothing there. Oh yeah, Martin Luther King. I'm a baseball fan. How does Major League Baseball protect the legacy of Jackie Robinson? They've retired number 42 across all of baseball and there's one game a year where every player on every team wears 42. You think that's significant? Think that helps them remember. What are we doing right now as Christians? We're gathering on the first day of the week. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? We're remembering the legacy of our Savior who rose from the dead. This is the day that Jesus resurrected. It's the Lord's day. And we're very, very good at forgetting what we should remember. We need these things. Symbols, memorials supplement our failing memory. Even the most basic tenets of our faith, the most basic events of our life, we forget. It's why I titled this message the way I did Don't Forget to Remember is the title of the message, and that's actually taken from a children's song that we like to play for our children, where the one singing, she says, don't forget to remember, you're never alone. Don't forget to remember, you're dearly loved. Don't forget to remember, God will guide you, because we are so prone to forget, aren't we? How many times have we been in total desperation, and God delivered us just so days hours minutes we move on and forget don't forget to remember symbols memorials supplement our failing memory by making our faith visible secondly symbols and memorials help us maintain a godly emphasis in our everyday lives a godly emphasis in our everyday lives it is a constant challenge don't you know to keep the main things the main things in life, to keep in front of us what is most important, to not let those most important things get overshadowed by all the buzzing that's going on around us all day, all these things that will eventually fade away. Sometimes God uses symbols and memorials to help us maintain our emphasis, and we see this in the story that's before us today. Look at chapter 5 again with me, starting at verse 2. Think about how interesting this is, after the nation crosses the Jordan, look at what God has them do. Joshua 5, verse 2, it says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives, and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives, and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah. I hadn't thought about how I was going to pronounce that until just now. Uh, That's, you know, working by yourself. You never have to really say things out loud. And so that one sneaked up on me. Verse 4, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom, to whom the Lord had sworn that He would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom He raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Well, it starts off in verse 2 by saying that this was a second time. Now, this was not a second time for the same generation. These aren't people who are getting circumcised individually two times, but a second mass event of circumcision among the Israelites. And what was circumcision? Why did this have to happen now? Well, circumcision was a memorial sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made with Abraham an unconditional covenant. This was all the way back starting in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 17, God introduces circumcision to Abraham and says that this practice is to continue as a sign of the covenant between the two of them. God was putting the emphasis on this covenant with Israel, wasn't He? As they came out of the water, and or the dry land, and the water was behind them, They had before them a land to conquer. There were people dwelling in that land with kings and armies. But before they could go on and take on their enemies, God says, all the males need to be circumcised a second time. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says commenting on this event. He says, this circumcising was a strange thing for Joshua, a keen military commander, to do. He was incapacitating his whole fighting force, an absolutely unmilitary act. It is silly to march your men right into the teeth of the enemy and then disable your own people. Joshua did it, nevertheless, because God told him to. God wanted them to keep their focus on Him and His promises, didn't He? And this couldn't wait. It had to be done. He gave them their emphasis. As counterintuitive as it was, it was both right and necessary for it to happen at that time and at that place. Again, this is making their faith visible. It's making the substance of their faith visible, a reminder of God's promises, setting them apart as a holy people and necessary for them if they were to participate in the Passover. And that's the very next thing that happened. Look at verse 8 with me, same chapter. After sons are circumcised, look at verse 8. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation. They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Well, this is just the third time in Israel's history that they had observed the Passover, if you can believe it. The first time, of course, was when it was instituted there in in Egypt, and there was one more time you can read about in the book of Numbers. But this was a critically important feast for them, and this was done for the first time in a positive context as a free people. This is the first time that they had gotten together and they had this feast, this memorial feast, as a free people with the shame rolled back from Egypt. I love that phrase in verse 9. God says, "'Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt.'" from you. This was another necessary symbol, another necessary memorial. In our flesh, we might think just practically it would make more sense to go and to fight all the enemies, and if it turns out positive, then remember the Lord through these memorials. But that's not God's way, is it? God's way is maintain your emphasis today, keep your eyes fixed on me. And I think it's very important for us to note, because we're all the way in chapter 5 now, And back in chapter 2, we were introduced to Rahab. Remember, Rahab is still in her little house in the the city wall in Jericho. Israel hasn't gotten to Jericho yet. And And Rahab is just sitting there in her house with her own symbol, her own memorial, that scarlet thread just hanging in the window. And so God is putting the emphasis of His people on these symbols, reminding them of the substance of their faith. As we look back at this, this is a long time ago, and we see circumcision and Passover. Those were Jewish rites. Well, we too have our symbols and memorials to give emphasis, don't we? We have symbols and memorials that bring visibility to our faith. Think of what's behind me up here on the wall. We have the cross. Christianity has the cross as a primary symbol to remind us of what is most important. Isn't that amazing that something so simple, just two lines, you can put it anywhere, and instantly, if you're a born-again believer, you start thinking about all kinds of amazing, godly, deep truths. You start thinking about who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ did for us on our behalf just by seeing two lines put together. It's a godly symbol. It's a memorial for us. As we look and see Israel here on that day, they had their shame rolled away from Egypt, We look to the cross and we see our shame rolled away, don't we? We look to the cross and we see any kind of guilt, any kind of reproach that stood against us, it's been rolled away. And the cross is empty. We don't put Jesus back on the cross. We look at an empty cross where we see the work was paid and the Savior highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. We don't have Passover, of course. But we look to the cross where our Passover lamb was slain, and then we get together and we observe communion, a new feast that reminds us of these same truths. And in a sense, just like Israel was eating their Passover on the plains of Jericho in enemy territory, so we too, we feast on communion somewhat on the plains of Jericho down here, right? In enemy territory, We know that we're in constant warfare all around us, and yet we feast to remember. We partake of the meal together to remember what Jesus has done for us. Francis Schaeffer, again, commenting on the meal, the Passover meal, he had a, a great commentary where he said, look, at the Passover, Israel was looking both backwards and forwards. They were looking back to the Passover event where they had to get a lamb and they had to put blood on the doorpost. But they were also looking forward to the coming of their Messiah, the one who was going to make an end to all of those issues that caused the Passover, the one who was going to roll away all sin. They were looking back toward the Passover event, yet forward to the first advent of Jesus Christ. And we too, as we share in communion, we look back and forward, don't we? We look back to the cross and we see what Jesus did to pay for our sin while we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Do you remember what it says in the New Testament? That those who partake of that meal, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're both looking backwards and forwards. But we must know what these symbols and what these memorials mean. And I want to issue this warning to you. Because if you don't know what these mean, there is no prophet. What profit is the cross to a pagan? What profit is communion to someone who doesn't believe in what communion represents? We have to understand the meaning of these symbols and these memorials. Growing up, my grandparents had the Ten Commandments on their wall. Every time we'd go there, I would see uh, this wooden plaque, and it had like a gold-looking, shiny uh, metal that was affixed to it. And you had the Ten Commandments there. We never talked about it. But it was there, you know. It was always looking at me when I was looking at it, you know. It was like the Mona Lisa, no matter where I was, and its eyes were following me. Growing up, by my front door, we had a big white Bible with a picture of what was supposed to be Jesus on the front. I don't know who it was, but it was supposed to be Jesus. And there it was. Never opened it. Don't know what it says. There are a lot of pages, but there it was. The eyes of that painting were following me every time I'd walk by. But you see, those symbols, they profited me nothing. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I never heard the gospel growing up. I heard, obey the Ten Commandments and get baptized and you'll be fine. We didn't know what the Ten Commandments were. Hopefully, don't cuss as one of them and I'll try to do that. We have to know the meaning of these symbols that God has given us. We have to know the meaning of these memorials that God has given the church so that we can instruct others, so that we can teach people what the gospel is, that it would be a profit to them. Because when the memorial or when the symbol is coupled with spiritual knowledge, there's a right emphasis that's maintained. With spiritual knowledge, it becomes much more effective. Effective. Yet there is one more danger too, before I get to the third way that God uses symbols and memorials, I want to give you one more danger to avoid. We must never let a good thing become an idol. We must never let a good thing become a God thing. These symbols and memorials that are in our lives that God has given us, they're not to become icons in the Christian life where we think that we need these types of elements to experience true worship. I just read recently about King Hezekiah. And you can really easily miss it if you're just breezing through the Old Testament. It says that King Hezekiah destroyed Moses' bronze serpent. You remember the serpent that Moses lifted up and the people were healed? It's because the people started offering incense to the symbol. People started worshiping the memorial. Well, God is the only one on the throne. There is no room for a bronze serpent on the throne. You don't bow the knee before a symbol. So they do help us maintain a godly emphasis, but we always must watch for worship of symbols. The third and final way that God uses symbols and memorials in our lives is to reach others. And we see that clearly again in our text today, where that memorial of the 12 stones, again, this is back in 4.24, Joshua 4.24, This memorial was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Have you noticed that symbols and memorials create natural opportunities for questions? Every time that we have communion here, it's the second Sunday of the month, every time we have communion, it's like an opportunity to talk to somebody about what on earth is going on. If this is someone's first time coming on communion Sunday, usually that person is a little confused about what we're up to. Well, that creates a natural conversation, doesn't it? This Gilgal Memorial of the Twelve Stones, we see that was particularly for reaching their children. Again, going back to the start of chapter 4, remember it says in verse 6, Joshua 4, 6, so that when your children ask later, it's for when the children ask. And again, in verse 21, when your children ask their fathers, this was a means of reaching their own children with the truth of God telling them what God had done for them. This Jordan event happened for the sake of all Israel, even the children, and they were to be instructed. They were to remember what God had done. They were to worship God. And we should want to make the faith visible to our children through these symbols and memorials that God has given us. And perhaps there's a special way that you can do that in your own home where people who come into your house, when they see something, they'll have a question and you'll say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you what my God did. There are all kinds of ways that God might lead you to do that. And this is especially helpful for children who are raised in Christian homes. Many of these children don't have a clear date of when they were born again. Many of them will grow up to be Christians, But they won't be able to point back to a single time and say, it was at that time I was sitting under that tree on that day in that year, and that's when I was regenerated. For some of us, our testimonies are that stark. But for many, they aren't. And so our children, who are growing up in homes like like ours, Christian homes, they may need something to help remind them of what God has done, even a little more than those who get saved later in life. Making the faith visible. You can think of the babies who went into Canaan in Israel. They crossed the Jordan River, perhaps in a stroller. What would they remember? They needed something to remind them, and God gave them a memorial. Now, sadly, this is no silver bullet in ensuring that children will grow up to know the Lord and love the Lord. We read about their children the ones who were supposed to learn from these memorials, we read about them in Judges chapter 2. If you're taking notes, you can jot down Judges 2.10. In Judges 2.10, it says, there was a generation that came up after this generation who did not know the Lord. Isn't that heartbreaking? These memorials that God gave the nation so that the children would remember, the children didn't remember, despite stones, despite circumcision, despite holy days, They still rejected God. So let me just finish with a couple of questions for you to mull over in your own mind as we consider how God is calling us to remember in our own lives. I don't want you to go home today and set up a stone tower, okay? Though that could be pretty interesting. Uh, Talk about a conversation starter. That crazy Christian down the road is building a monument in his front yard. (laughs) Uh, That would be interesting. I do want you to think about, though, what God would have you to talk about and to emphasize in your own home. What would God have you talk about and emphasize? What symbols, what memorials bear significance for your faith? And in what ways can you leverage those to have conversations with people, particularly the young ones among us, to talk to them about Jesus Christ, to talk to them about the gospel? How will those certain Symbols or memorials in your life help you emphasize the right things. How will you make that connection? In our house, uh, there was a time when she did this a lot, but my wife made art pieces that just had scripture verses on it. Sometimes they would be really big. And I just loved seeing, and I still do, some of them are still hanging. I love seeing those hanging in our home, a reminder of what God has has called us to do, what God has called us to thank, how God has called us to live, to see that on our walls. And I love, too, that we'd pick out like some some deep verses, not just like John 3.16, you know, and verses like that, but when someone comes in, it's like, oh, I've never read that before. Think about how God might call you to emphasize, to memorialize what He has said and what He has done, even in your own home. And this is important because what happens when we forget? Ironically, you may not remember right? (laughs) But what happens when we forget? Well, we read in the book of Judges what happens. We do what is right in our own eyes. When we don't remember, we get very self-centered, and we get very pragmatic, and we aren't serving the Lord the way He's called us to serve Him. We lose our focus. So, I want to close today with a passage from the New Testament as we think as Christians how we are supposed to go about this life remembering, I want to read to you Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ways that you graciously, gently remind us, the ways that you bring to our memory what you have done and why you are worthy of worship. And God, we ask that as we set out today and go home and we think about what application you might have us make from this passage today, that that we would find a way to understand and remember more of what it is that you have done on our behalf, that we may know you and worship you and serve you forever. You are our faithful and good God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.